Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. Thanks, Richard. If you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Haggai. I'd love for everybody to be bringing uh, their personal Bible to church on Sundays. Consider that an invitation to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, that's great. We have blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. Turn to page 941. We're going to be looking at the book of Haggai this morning. Uh, With that in mind, we're going to start off reading just the first seven verses of chapter one. Uh, But really, Haggai should only be about a page and a half in your Bible Uh, So, Lord willing, we will get through Haggai together. And with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord to us out of the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time hasn't come yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together as God's beloved people. Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of our high priest and King Jesus that we would hear your voice and that even this morning we, as your beloved people, would consider your ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you dive into the book of Haggai, really the theme of this short prophet is to consider our ways. And really that word consider there comes up five times all throughout the book of Haggai. So what I thought I would do, because this is a shorter book in a lot of ways, is we're just going to dive in in each section and see what the Lord is communicating to his people in the prophet Haggai and what that means for you and me. So look down right there in verse 1, chapter 1, and let's consider Uh, the book of Haggai for just a second. So right there, it tells us that this is in the second year of a guy named Darius. And already our eyes are glossing over, but here's what you need to know. In the Old Testament story, God's people are tragically exiled to what country? Who knows? Where are they exiled? To Babylon, and they're there for uh, something like almost 70 years. But then a king named Cyrus sends them back in the year 536. Kind of boring, right? Why does that matter? Well, it's helpful to know that when Haggai stands up and he declares to the people, thus saith the Lord, it's time to finish building the temple of the Lord. When it says that he's speaking in the second year of King Darius, he's speaking in 520 BC. So what year did they get back to the land? So I just said it. Anybody anybody was quick on the numbers? They get back in 536 And how long has it taken them to not build the temple? 16 years. So the people have come back to the promised land. They have, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, I know that sounds like forever ago when we talked about those books, but they get back in 536, and now 16 years later, 
Who can remember 16 years later? Who remembers 2005? Was the iPhone even a thing? There are people in the room who weren't even alive in 2005. 16 years ago, and still they haven't built the temple. And so, if you read Ezra chapter 5, what happens is two prophets, a guy named Haggai and his contemporary, a guy named Zechariah, who we'll learn about next Sunday, they, they get up and they say, consider your ways. Is it right for you to devote time to fixing your backyard up and expanding your garage while the temple of the Lord lies in ruins? And then Haggai goes on, he says, consider this. You spend all this money, but it's just gone. You collect all the money, and then it's just out of the bag because there's like holes in it. Look at verse 6. He says, yeah, you have seed to sow, but you don't harvest very much. You eat, but you're always dissatisfied. Consider your ways. Well, this is a timeless message, is it not? I mean, who here doesn't need to hear the word of Haggai, thus saith the Lord? Consider your ways. Well, let's do a thought experiment, okay? Um, just, you know, you can close your eyes if you need to do this thought experiment, but imagine a world in which people have to with, with go having corporate worship. They're not able to worship in the temple. They're not able to take the holy sacraments. And instead, what happens is they're all scattered, and then eventually they regather, but it's not nearly as interesting, and it feels like worship is gutted. And so, because it's frustrating, well, you know what happens next? Well, why have they waited 16 years? Well, it's because in Haggai, the government tells them to stop doing it. And so, that was all the justification the people needed. Isn't that easy how quickly they said, well, the, you know, the civil magistrate tells us not to do this, so let's hold off. And the next thing you know, what happens? 16 years go by. But what have God's people been doing? Well, when Haggai stands up and says, well, you've done a great job with your paneled houses, but how's the temple? And then he says, consider your ways. Now, imagine a world where that could actually apply to today's world. I know, that's really hard. <laughs> It's really hard, right? Could you imagine coming back to corporate worship and it being somewhat disappointing? And so your natural reaction is, well, God is a priority, but not the main priority right now. Maybe my paneled homes should be my priority, right? It's a thought experiment, hard to imagine. But what are we supposed to hear from this? Well, if we can sort of apply it to my, to my life, um, you know, when I got my Biden bucks, anyone get their Biden bucks? It's great. This is one of the, the benefits of having a bunch of kids, right? I keep getting more. Well, how many of us during this time have noticed that worship and church life feels a little gutted, and there's a very obvious place to spend some of our extra money? And where is that? In my backyard. Some of you have seen it. And we've invested time and energy making our homes great. And of course, I don't think I speak for myself alone. I mean, who, who here is willing to admit that you've worked on your yard lately? Nobody? Oh, man, I wonder where all the stuff's been going at the, at the stores. You see, but what Haggai is saying is he's standing up and saying, thus saith the Lord. You know, it's, it's possible for people, for believers, for people like me and people like God's people during the day of Haggai, to sort of always believe that God is a priority, 
but not the priority. Sure, God's on the table. Sure, He's a priority, but is He the absolute heartbeat of your life? Is He the priority of your life? Notice what the people say. Now, look at verse 2. The Lord says, well, these people say, it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. You know, God had given His Old Testament people a mission. He had given Ezra and Nehemiah a mission to rebuild the land of Israel, to rebuild the temple. And the people weren't arguing with God. They didn't say, well, we're not supposed to do that. They just said, well, now's not the best time to do that. Now's not an ideal time, Lord. And then sure enough, what happens is 16 years go by, and the thing that is a priority rarely moves its way up to the priority, right? You know, this reminds me of how annoying prophets can be. <laughs> is it any wonder why Jesus says these people killed the prophets? <laughs> It's because prophets say things that are incredibly inconvenient. You know, it reminds me of uh, the prophetic letter that um, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote. Uh, anyone ever read Letter from a Birmingham Jail? It's a wonderful letter. I'd encourage you to read it every MLK weekend. And uh, in that letter, Martin Luther King Jr. says, he starts off and he says, he begins by saying, you know, all these pastors write to me from all over the country. You know what they tell me? They tell me now's not the time. They tell me to wait. But I'm telling you, now is the time, and now is the moment where we're supposed to move forward. But all these other pastors are telling me, we agree with you, but now's not the time. You see, that's the annoying thing about people who are prophetic, right? You know, I think about times in my life where somebody has had to recalibrate me or challenge me or tell me that my priorities are wrong, right? I'm sure you've had moments in your life where your spouse or your friends or your mentor says, hey, you need to recalibrate. And your immediate reaction is what? Well, could you have picked a worse moment in my life to tell me to recalibrate? And what does your friend or your beloved one say? The mess that you're in is the very reason you need to recalibrate. There's rarely a time in your life where a beloved person speaks prophetically and says, realign to God's plan. And it will feel like, yeah, now's the time. <laughs> you see, when Haggai says, now is the time, it's not convenient for the people. So could it be that even in those moments when we think it's inconvenient, those are the exact crucial moments in your life where you need to reestablish the priorities right? This is exactly what MLK was saying. Now is the exact time to bring it about. Haggai had the same message. How easy it is for me, for you, for the people in Haggai's day to make God a priority, but to cease to make Him the priority. So what needs to happen? Well, consider our ways. Like if you look at verses 1 through 11, that's basically the message of Haggai in this first section. Consider your ways. Is there something that I need to recalibrate? Is there a word that I need to hear the Lord speaking to me right now? Consider your ways. You notice God says it twice? Look at verse 5. Consider your ways. Look at verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. So what needs to happen? Well, look at verse 12 through the end of chapter 1. The next thing that we see is God invites us to consider our obedience, right? So what happens is we're introduced again to the prophet, the priest, the king, 
and the people, right? We get the king, Zerubbabel, we get the high priest, Joshua, and we get the people. And of course, Haggai is the prophet. And so we're reminded of all those same people. But what did these people do? Look at verse 12. What happens? It uses that awful word, that word, that triggering word. You see what it is? What do they do? Then Zerubbabel the king, Joshua the priest, and all the people did what? (gasps) Obeyed. Obey is a dangerous word. Oh, that's legalism. Oh, obedience? No, thank you. Do I want to be obedient? You know, years ago when I was a uh, single person in college, anyone, any, anybody in college in the room? It's wonderful years, terrible years also, but kind of great in some ways. Uh, but when I was in college, I worked every summer at a summer camp, and I worked with little kids, and it was great because I got to learn how to like kids and spend time with them. So I was with the six- and seven-year-olds. And uh, when I worked at summer camp, we would have to write parents' letters, lying to them about how great their kids were, right? <laughs> you know, has anyone ever had to do that kind of letter like, uh, Johnny is a wonderful child and never disobeys, you know? Yeah, all the teachers in the room are like, yeah, I've had to send those emails, right? Well, when we write these letters about, you know, kids to their parents, you know, we, I remember I wrote a letter, and the camp director actually used it as like the case study of what not to say in a letter to a parent. And he was like, all right, guys, we got to talk about this. Let's talk about this letter, because this guy said the wrong thing. And you know what I had said? We had said that this child was very obedient. And the camp director said, you can't describe a child as obedient. Obedience is what you expect from a dog. And I was like, I thought I was complimenting the child. He's like, that's not a compliment. People don't want to obey. We want to be persuaded and then come to our own conclusions. How dare you speak to me of obedience? That's what my dog is for, right? But friends, look at verse 12. The people, the king, the priest, they do what? They obey. And friend, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, I know without a doubt in my mind that right now the Spirit of the living God that rose Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And that means the Spirit in you yearns to obey, not me, but obey the Lord. That there is a yearning that says, look, if you're going to call me a dog, at least I get to eat from the scraps of the table of the king. Friends, that's the kind of faith that the woman has. Do you remember that story from Jesus' life? He says, I've come for the children of Israel. And she says, well, even, even the dogs get to eat from the table, right? And he says, I commend that faith in you. Friend, do you have that, ur- that urge, that desire, that Holy Spirit-empowered desire to obey? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. One guy. <laughs> one guy. That's one- you know why that's exciting? Because last night, In my newly fashioned backyard with my newly fashioned fire pit, I got one little flame. Well, okay, I'm lying. My wife got one little flame to go. (laughs) And 20 minutes later, we had a big old fire. All it takes is a little bit of obedience. It grows like fire. All it takes is Zerubbabel and Joshua. And pretty soon, all the remnant of the people yearn to obey. And, you know, why should you obey? Why do we obey? Well, look at verse 13. God's going to give the 
best argument for obedience that you could ever find. Then Haggai, the prophet, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and he said what? I am with you, declares the Lord. Friend, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and you're willing to consider your ways, all you need, the green light that you need to rev the engine and go is the promise that you can do life with the Lord in your life. That's all it takes. If God will be with me, I will go for it. You know, the Puritan theologian William Perkins once wrote that, the, that theology, knowing God, is the science of living blessedly forever, right? Knowing God is learning how to live with the blessing of God all your life. And if you want to obey, more than anything, what you want is you want God to bless you because you realize if God's not in it, you have a bag and there are holes all over it. What good is it if you have a beautiful spouse, but the Lord isn't the heart of your marriage? Or what good is it if you have a beautiful home, but the Lord is not the focus of your home? Friends, this is what the people have. They have things, but they don't have the Lord. They don't have contentment. They sow, but they never have enough. They have all the curated experiences they could ever want, all the curated life. And when they're done, what do they need? They need more. They need the next experience. Friends, this is the eternal question. Is God enough? It was for the people. Because they don't think obedience is a bad word. They're like, yes, Lord, I will consider my ways. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, this is a, a life principle or some you know, advice that I would consider you to think about. And I know I've said it before, but it's worth repeating because I think it's really important. Uh, and it's this very simple principle, and you can write it down if you want. Uh, but it goes like this. Uh, friends, this is a truism for life. What you consume, you want more of. Okay? Did you catch that? What you consume is what you want more of. Do I need to, you know how I can prove this to you? This past week, has anybody thought randomly, inexplicably, that all of a sudden you have a hankering for a hundred grand candy bar? The rest of your life, 364 days of the year, you're not thinking about hundred grand, you're not thinking about Reese's, you're not thinking about M&M's, but all of a sudden, it was like, mm, you know what I want right now? I want a Twix. I don't ever think about Twix. Why do I want those things? Well, because by my calendar, last week, I went to a harvest carnival, and my kids brought a bunch of candy home, and there's a bunch of candy in my house. And then worse off, you know where the rest of the, you know where all the surplus of the candy is? I'll tell you. You know where it is? It's in the church office, <laughs> right outside my door. You know how I know that? I'm like Gollum over there. I'm like, you know, I'm eating all of this candy, and all of a sudden I want more candy. Why do I want more candy? Because what I consume is what I want more of. Friends, if you consume a curated life, excellent things, excellent food, if you want a curated backyard, excellent yards, if you want a curated RV, these things, the things that you consume, you end up wanting more of. Anybody here done with your backyard? Anybody done? Anybody done? Anybody got enough money? No, because there's never enough money. You know why? 
because there ain't never enough Twixes, right? Because what you consume is what you want more of. But the beautiful thing about that, friend, the great hope is that if you and I repent and we turn to something else and we want the Lord and the Lord says, I will do life with you. I am with you. Take heart. Value my kingdom over everything else. The amazing thing is if we want the Lord, we get more of him. And it feels very hard in the moment to choose the Lord. And maybe you need to take some time to think about what it means for you and your family to repent and to turn to and want more of the Lord. I mean, it takes the people, they take 24 days. If you look down in verse 15, if you do the math, Haggai says it's time to consider our ways. They take three weeks to think about what it means to consume the Lord and to want more of Him. But friends, the great blessing is it's like a snowball, right? It takes, you know, if you can imagine a snowball, right? I mean, if you push it downhill, eventually it compiles, and the momentum of that carries it further and further. Friends, that's like the trajectory of your life. If you want the Lord, if you want to make Him the priority, more and more of that which is truly life will collect all around you so that you'll see things like your finances as a, a channel for you to bless poor people through. And the hard part about choosing alms over things, of course, is in the short term, it's not very enjoyable. But take heart, work, build, and trust that over time, if you just make a small commitment to give alms to the poor, that you will actually want to do what eventually? Give more. Give more. Because it'll be building on itself because what you want will have fundamentally changed in the way you spend your time and your energy and the dream life that you have will be utterly different because you'll want something different. Because where your treasure is, is where? Where your heart is. But it takes that first hand to the plow, choosing obedience to start it. Consider your ways. Consider our obedience. Now let's just get real for a second. Chapter 2. The people respond. They start rebuilding the temple. They're convicted. Of course, God never says it's wrong to build paneled homes at all. God's not condemning backyards. He just wants to be the priority. But let's be honest. What happens in Haggai is the people start rebuilding the temple. And what does the Lord say? Like in chapter 2, <laughs> they've rebuilt it. And then look at verse 3. Haggai stands up and says, uh, who, who remembers what the house was like uh, before the, Babylon, the Babylonians destroyed it? Who, who remembers what the temple used to be like? And, you know, all, all, all the grumpy guys are like, we do, right? You know, all the people, some people are like, yeah, we remember. And then the Lord asks, this is verse 3, well, how do you see it now? Isn't it as nothing in your eyes? See, this third section of Haggai, it shows us that we need to consider our disappointment. The people are convicted. They change their ways. They commit to the temple. But then even when they build the temple, they're looking around and they're like, this, this is it? This is the post-exile temple? This is disappointing. Where is everybody? 
Where's all the glory? I thought God was going to come down with His Shekinah glory like He did when Solomon built the first temple. And the Lord says, consider your disappointment. Another way of, I guess, getting at this is, you know, the post-exile community, uh, it didn't impress the people with their return on investment. They spent time and energy, but it didn't seem quite the same. Well, who here hasn't thought the same of the church today? The post-COVID church is a little gutted. Things are different and not a little disappointing. So what do we do with that? Well, what does the Lord say if you're disappointed in the rebuilding effort? Look at verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. You hear the answer of God? And even better than the promise that God is with us, God then goes on and He gives an incredible promise to the people. He says in verse 5, My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than it was in the past, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what God's response is? He says, you're disappointed. Fear not. Work towards the kingdom because one day there will be more glory in this temple than there ever was when Solomon reigned. And I will shake the nations and the nations will come and bring their treasures into the temple. You know, you ever seen those like cartoons where somebody, you know, grabs somebody by the scruff of the collar and they shake them and then like all these like, you know, coins fall out of them? You know, see, image, God says, I'm going to shake the world so that all of the foreign nations of this world come and they give tribute and praise to the God of Israel. You see, the prophecy of Haggai is he has the audacity to say that one day there will be a greater glory in the temple than anything Solomon ever saw. And friends, you know what the greater glory of the temple is. When the Lord himself, God became flesh, he was called what? Emmanuel, God with us. And the glory of the Spirit fell on him in his baptism. And in John chapter 2, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, stands up and he says, tear this temple down and I will raise it up in three days. Because he was speaking of his body, which was the temple. And friends, the glory, the treasures, the tribute, the praise of every people group is now given to Jesus, who is the temple. The temple was always where heaven met earth. That's what the temple was. That's where God's presence uniquely was, was the temple. That's why they built it. That's why it was in the center of the camp, is because that was where heaven and earth met. And Jesus Christ says to you and me that he is the temple. 
He came and he tabernacled among us. And friends, now by the Spirit, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 tells his believers what? He says, don't you know where heaven meets earth? He says, you are the temple of the living God. Do you not realize that you are a temple of the Holy Ghost? Heaven meets earth in Christ Jesus. And now that same spirit meets with you. And and that story is not over. Because as you know, through the whole story of this testament, this whole story of this series, we know that there's a final chapter yet to come. And I love what Gregory of Nazianzus, that great church father of the Greek church, said. He wrote in the 300s. He says when he was commenting on Haggai, he says that there was a great shaking at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, God shook the world, and the world went from idolatry to the law. And we got the Ten Commandments. But then at the cross, God shook the earth when Jesus died. says that in Matthew. And we went from the law to the gospel. And Haggai tells you and me that one day, if you have the eyes to see it, there will be a third great shaking when Christ Jesus returns and he gives us an unshakable kingdom. Friends, we await the return of the king. And even if church right now looks gutted, be strong, be strong. Commit your ways to the Lord. You Friends, you have the Spirit. You know what it means to commit your ways to the Lord. If you don't know this already, friends, let me tell you with everything that I have within me, you, at the end of your life, you have only two things. You have two things in life. Everything else is going to end up in a garbage dump or be forgotten. You know what those two things are? You and I, all we have is our relationship with the Lord and the lives of people that we invest in. Everything else is is gone. Everything else is going away. That's all you and I have. We have our relationship with God and the lives of people that you invest in. When God says, consider your ways, don't make it about the paneled homes, what is he saying? Make your life about me and invest in the kingdom. Uh, Friends, how easily we can move to things and experiences instead of the Lord and the people that we are called to bless. I mean, how does Jesus describe the whole purpose of life? What's the greatest commandment? To love God and what else? To love your neighbor as yourself. Another way of saying that is all you have in this life is your relationship with Christ and the lives of people that you invest in. Friends, consider your ways. Consider obedience. Consider your disappointment. Be strong. The king is coming. Who are the lives and the people you are called uniquely to invest in? I have enough kids of my own, y'all. I don't need more people to invest in, trust me. You just finish up. If you flip to the final section, Haggai, two more sections, we'll just do them together. The people wrestle with their disappointment. God promises his everlasting kingdom, challenges them to reconsider their lives, their obedience. And then in chapter 2, 10 through 19, he gives an interesting series of questions. Again, you know, multiple times, three times, verse 15 and verse 18, he uses that word again, consider, consider, consider. 
And what basically Haggai does is he looks to the priests and he says, let me ask you some questions. If you have something holy and you touch something not holy, if you've got something holy on you, do you just by default make that thing holy? And the priests say, no, that's, you, you, that's not really how holiness works. You know, if you, even if you're holding something holy, if you just touch a normal thing, it just remains normal. And then Haggai says, good, good, yeah, that's the right answer. Okay, well, let me ask you something like this. If you are defiled and you touch something holy, do you defile that thing? And they say, yeah, that's how it works. It's easier to defile something than it is to make something holy, right? And then Haggai says, well, the Lord says, even as you're building the house, you're defiling it. But God says, but take heart. I'm still going to be with you, and I will bless you. You see, what the Lord is asking his people to do is to consider their heart and their motivation for why they are obedient. You see, the point of those questions is, is it, is it possible for you and I to be obedient, to tithe to the poor, to give to the church, to serve, to do all of these external things, but actually be, to be touching holy things but have a defiled heart? Well, Haggai says, absolutely, yes. You see, the beauty of faith is that it empowers us to do holy, blessed things with a pure heart. We serve, we rejoice, we praise, we give alms to the poor because we love God, because we have consumed Him, because we want more of Him. And friends, this is a great reminder to consider your heart. Where are you on the inner life? You know, think about it. You know, I think about this. I mean, this may seem like God's really demanding because he wants external service and he wants a pure heart, but just consider this, okay? So, you know, let's say your anniversary is coming up soon, right? And if you took your spouse out to dinner, guys, you know, I'm talking to you. Good job for the guys who wore the tie. Thank you for not making me wear a tie alone. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to start a new tradition. Let's all dress up on Communion Sunday. Huh. may not work. But guys, if you took your wife out on your anniversary and you were like, duh, where do you want to go? You, oh, we have to do it. Okay, uh, you know, the football game's on later today. You know, where do you want, okay, you want to go there? Okay, mm-hmm, 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 all right. Would any self-respecting woman accept obedience with a defiled heart? How much more would a holy and loving God want begrudging obedience? If a, if a human wouldn't accept defiled obedience. Why would the Lord? And friends, by faith, by the power of the Spirit, you and I, we can wrestle with our disappointment. We can wrestle with what obedience looks like for us, and we can do it in a way from a pure heart. Man, there's no pillow softer than what? You might know that in a saying. There's no pillow softer than a clean conscience and a pure heart. The final section of Haggai, verse 20 through uh, 23, of course, is Haggai encourages the people, and he basically says, never fear, Zerubbabel, descendant of David, God is not going to give up on his promise to use the line of David to produce the Messiah. And really, that's where Haggai ends. He ends with us considering the Christ, the Messiah, the king of the kingdom. And friends, as you consider this 
short book and what it means for you. Let me just finish uh, with a short quote from C.S. Lewis in uh, The Abolition of Man. C.S. Lewis uh, says these words. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, but if true, of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Friends, that's an invitation to consider your ways. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that we would know that you are with us. Uh, Father, I pray that by the Spirit that that would be enough for each one of us. Lord, that we would hear you speaking through Haggai, that we would consider our ways. And Lord, that we would repent where there needs to be repentance. And Lord, that you would grant joy and peace as we do. And Father, would we desire more and more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.